Thanks, Laura. Morning, everyone. Hope you guys are all good. Here are my notes from last week. These are the notes from this week. Um, so my kids were up early this morning. And, well, actually, I was going to... So our kids are up at 4.45, but let me just um, rewind that back to 3.30 when Roman, our three-year-old, um, woke up and said that he's hungry um, at 3.30 in the morning. I don't think that kid has ever been full, not one day in his life. Um, and so at 3.30 in the morning, um, I want to say I got up, but my wife got up and uh, got him some food at 3.30. And then at 4.45, um, after, you know, sleeping, um, we got woken up by our kids jumping on the bed. As good kids, Sunday school, kids church, pastors, kids, jumping on the bed saying, it's Palm Sunday, it's Palm Sunday which, you know, I was kind of fairly delighted at that they kind of knew the scriptures, but I'm trying to shout at them saying, no, it's Calm Sunday, Calm. Everybody calm down. I then try to con my daughter, and I'm like, hey, um, do you know on Palm Sunday, um, I did even say the Bible says, I probably shouldn't have. Um, I'm like, the Bible says you need to tickle your dad's back while he lies here in bed. <laughs> to which she responded, no, that's Christmas Eve. So I'm like, I've obviously used this trick before, but I'm like, I'll bank that one. Thank you. <laughs> so anyways, welcome to church. It is such a privilege to be able to share God's word with you. We are in the middle, the second part of an Easter series called The Garden, The Gauntlet, and The Empty Grave. And um, just to give you a little bit of a recap, if you missed last week, uh, The Garden was basically, we're looking at the journey of Jesus to the cross and to the empty grave. And we're particularly looking and going like, why? Why did Jesus have to sit in the garden? What happened in the garden that seemingly was so important to God that he had to sit and process and go through the garden? And then this week, the gauntlet. Why did Jesus go through the gauntlet? Why did he not just get pegged up to a cross, die for our sins, raised three days later? What was it about the garden, the gauntlet, and the empty grave? And last week, again, if you missed it, we basically shared this thought that Jesus went through the garden to experience your pain. To say that I've sat in your garden. Perhaps to sum up last week, he says this, before I spilt my blood, I sweat my blood. As in I understood the sorrow and the grief and the pain. And so before I spilt my blood, I sweat my blood, understanding what you go through. And so this week we're looking at the gauntlet. And if you need a, a kind of definition of the gauntlet, um, it means this, to go through an intimidating or dangerous crowd um, or experience in order to reach a goal. The, the journey Jesus went through from the garden to the cross. And this route that Jesus took is pretty famously uh, known as the Via Dolorosa. The Via Dolorosa, which means this, the way of sorrow or the way of suffering, perhaps to say it in another way, the painful way. The journey from the garden to the cross has been named as the painful way. To, to kind of explain it, if Jesus had to have whipped out his GPS and typed in fastest, quickest, easiest route to the cross, it would not have been the Via Dolorosa. Because what lay ahead of Jesus was not easy, was not quick. It had 
a variety of obstacles that he had to walk through, which we've now called today for the series, The Gauntlet. And in many ways, the GPS would have tried to reroute him, but it seems very clear to us that heaven wouldn't allow that. That this particular scene, last week we spoke about shooting a movie and about putting specific scenes in place to reveal the character, not just the plot, but the character of each person in the movie. And so the author of our faith, God, makes sure that the gauntlet takes place so that we get to see specific attributes of the character of Christ. The gauntlet being an intentional scene that Jesus puts, that the Father puts in Jesus' path. And let's be clear, what lay ahead of Jesus was not just daunting, it was death. In fact, on the walk while he carries the cross, he gets to Calvary or Golgotha, and Golgotha literally means the place of the skull. Jesus looked death in the face. What lay ahead of him wasn't just daunting, friends. It was death. The cross, such an inhumane way of execution that it was banned in the fourth century, never to be used again. So I want to paint this picture today of this procession, this gauntlet that Jesus walked for you and I, because we need to understand what he did so that we can unpack why he did it. And so I'm going to give you a glimpse, and it really in many ways doesn't paint the full picture. It can't paint the full picture of what Jesus did. Um, but I've put together some passages from the scriptures, and I'm going to try and paint a picture from Jesus in the garden through the gauntlet, and we'll hold the empty grave to next week, but I'm going to give you this picture of this procession, this gauntlet. And so Jesus, in the garden of Gethsemane, alone, rejected, betrayed, overcome by sorrow and grief, he gets a glimpse of what lies ahead of him, the suffering that is required to take place. He is so overwhelmed, the Bible says, that he sweat blood. Medically speaking, this only happens under extreme trauma when the blood vessels burst in your head and the sweat and blood mix to roll down your forehead. He cries out to God, his father, God, if there is no other way, God, is there any other way? Could you take this cup from me? But then cries out to God, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. We spoke about this last week. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. Then one of his own, Judas, betrays him with a kiss. He's arrested, falsely accused, unfairly tried and sentenced to death by crucifixion, stripped naked publicly exposed, humiliated and ashamed, and a crown of thorns is driven into his head. Now the beating would start, relentless clubbing and beating, whips full of stones that would whip around his body and would tear into his skin and then be ripped out of his skin. Relentless clubbing and beatings. He would receive 39 lashes, friends, because 40 would kill a man. They would drive the crown of thorns into his head, which would push the poison into his scalp, causing an excruciating migraine headache. 
They ripped out his beard, spat in his face, mocked and tortured him. The Bible says he was so disfigured, he was unrecognizable. Weak, suffering, and alone, they force him to carry his 40 kg cross half a kilometer on the Via Dolorosa down the gauntlet, taking seven inch nails. They drive them into, not his hands, friends, but his wrists and his ankles. His back would have been so ripped open that his internal organs would have been exposed. The only way for him to breathe would be to pull himself up on the cross in order that his lungs would be able to gasp and catch a breath. Eventually, from all of this pulling up, his shoulders would dislocate. Hanging under the heat of the day as creation mocks its creator on the cross. And that was not the worst of it for Jesus. For, for, for Jesus, for the very first time, Jesus takes on the weight of the world, the sin of the world, and is disconnected for the very first time from his father and cries out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Via Dolorosa, a brutal, undeserved, inhumane gauntlet. In fact, friends, when they say that he was beaten beyond recognition, in doing some research this week, in the Old Testament, it prophesies, it speaks of the sacrifice, it speaks of the crucifixion of our Savior, and it says that he will be whipped, and it says by his stripes, meaning the whipping, by his stripes, we will be healed. But then when you read the passage in the New Testament written in Greek, it doesn't use the word stripes, it uses the word stripe. In the Old Testament, by his stripes, we have been healed. In the New Testament, by his stripe, we have been healed. Meaning, there wasn't a stripe of flesh left on him. Otherwise, it would have been by his stripes. But because he was so beaten, there was no longer stripes of flesh. It was one stripe of blood. No more flesh upon our Savior. Beaten beyond recognition. The gauntlet. Worse than the pain of the cross was the shame of the cross. The cross was itself the embodiment and emblem of the most hideous of human obscenities. The cross was a symbol of reproach, degradation, humiliation, and disgust. It was aesthetically repugnant. In a word, the cross was obscene. It was a public symbol of indecency and social indignity. Crucifixion was designed to do more than, mere, than merely kill a man. Its purpose was to humiliate him as well. The cross was intended not only to break a man's body, but also to crush a man's spirit. Our Savior, the gauntlet. If you don't believe me, Isaiah chapter 53 says it like this, as well as many other scriptures. It says, he was despised and rejected a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief, the garden. We turned our backs on him 
and look the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And, and we thought it was his troubles. His troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. This is what the gauntlet looked like. I guess the question you and I need to ask is why? Why? Why did Jesus not go from the garden straight to the cross? Why did Jesus not miss the garden and the gauntlet and go to the cross? The author of our faith, God, he authored the gauntlet. He made sure that part of the script is that Jesus, our Savior, the great I Am, would walk the gauntlet. Why? Why didn't he just skip or bypass this pain, this gauntlet, this Via Dolorosa? Now, I can't tell you that I have the answer, but I'd like to suggest an answer today. I'd like to suggest that all of heaven wanted to shout to humanity how valuable it was. It wanted to shout to humanity how valuable you are. Think about it. You fight for what you value. You fight for what you value. I would like to think that I would die for my kids. I would like to think that I would go through hell for my kids. Let me give you an example. What's going on in Ukraine at the moment is deeply disturbing to me, as I'm sure it is to many of you. But it's deeply personal because part of the work we do in True Life is writing content on a weekly and monthly basis for work in the Ukraine. We are translating stuff into their language. We are sitting, part of the people that we're working with are trapped in Ukraine. Some have now gone to be part of the military without their own permission. They're just older than 16, and so their orphans have now been prescribed to the army. We are getting daily and weekly emails and updates via Facebook and emails saying, please pray, this is the circumstance that's going on. It is deeply disturbing for me. In fact, I am disturbed when I don't pray or miss a day. And yet, as disturbed as I am, I have not jumped on a plane, and I have not gone to fight. And I'll tell you the difference. If my kids were sitting in Ukraine, I would be on a plane, because you fight for what you value the most. And although there are times we are moved by emotion, and though there are times we are deeply grieved, it is only when you truly value something more than your own life that you will walk the gauntlet, that you will walk the Via Dolorosa. And so I think all of heaven shouts, do you know how valuable you are? John chapter three, verse 16, it says this, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. For God so loved I want to ask you this question today, friend. Do you believe that you are so loved? Do you believe that you are so valued that you are deeply cherished 
that God would demonstrate with a gauntlet, even though he did not need to, friend, but he wanted to make a statement to humanity to let you know, I'll get on a plane, I'll land in Ukraine, I will leave the comfort of heaven and I will walk the, the gauntlet, not that I would just say I love you, but I want to demonstrate that I love you. And so I'll walk the gauntlet. And I'll suffer things that are not due to me so that you would know that you are so loved. My deep prayer this week is that you and I would not know, but would know. There's something about having a revelation of the love of God that changes the way that you and I live here on this earth. I don't think for many of us, we believe that we are so loved. I don't think we place that value on our life. I think for many of us, it's not that we feel so loved or so valued or so cherished, but for many of us, it's rather that we feel like a mess up or a mistake or a failure or an afterthought. And if last week we looked at the emotions of man, the fact that he sits in your garden and he feels your sorrow and he feels your grief and he feels your pain and he knows your stress and he knows the fatigue. And he kn if last week was about knowing the emotions of man, this week I believe it's about transforming the mind of man. It's about how do you think about yourself? How do you view yourself? What do you think about your value and your worth because friends, Jesus ran that gauntlet. It's not something he's considering doing, it's something he's already done because of the high price, because of the high value he placed upon your life. Jesus ran that gauntlet, but for some of us, we have a running commentary in our heads of you're not good enough. You don't have what it takes. You're useless. Nobody cares. You're good for nothing. Unlovable. Undeserving. And yet he ran that gauntlet. And we have this running commentary in our heads. You're chatting to Laura this week and having Mel here today. I know she would agree. Most, if not all, of the counseling issues come back to a root problem. Like when you unpack everything. When you unravel everything, eventually this statement gets kind of blurted out that says, I just don't feel good enough. I don't feel like I'm worthy. Why would anybody love me? And to that, friends, I have to ask you this. Who told you that? Seriously. Who told you that? Because somehow you and I are eating a diet, a habitual diet of lies. Listen to what John chapter 8 verse 44 says. It says, when he, he being the devil, lies, he, the devil, speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Some of us have this soundtrack on repeat in our heads. Not good enough, not worthy enough, don't have what it takes, nobody cares. This lie upon lie upon lie of our identity. Some of you have an identity crisis. You think you're somebody that you're not. All of heaven is like, 
Who said? Who said? Who said you that? Lie upon lie upon lie that we eat as a staple diet. Who told you that? Who told you that, friends? You know, when somebody is anorexic, you can take them to a mirror and you can show them themselves and they will look with intent at that mirror and they will see something different to what you see. They will look and see an overweight person looking back at them. Do you know how many of us are looking into a mirror and we see unworthy and God says, who said? We see not valuable. Heaven goes, who told you that? If my kids for a moment came up to me and started to tell me things like, I don't know if I deserve your love. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can earn your acceptance. If, if they start to, in some ways, insinuate that I would love them less, I would shake them. Say, who told you that? Who got into your head and told you that? And friends, I want to tell you with some kind of humble aggression, who told you that? Do you have humble aggression? I don't know. I just want to shake you. Because all of heaven made a decision to run the gauntlet. Have you ever, we often look at Jesus. Have you ever thought about the Father while Jesus went through the gauntlet? Who told you that? So let's dispel some lies that have been on repeat in some of our heads. People don't tell you who you are and what your worth is. Jesus does. Many of you have believed the words of your mom, your dad, your friend, your teacher, your spouse, and they have begun to define you. And today I'm believing as we sang that there is freedom in this house, that there is freedom online, that God will free you from those words that have been on repeat. No one defines you other than Jesus. You can allow people to define you, or you can choose to be defined by your creator. Line number two, your past doesn't define you, Jesus does. Some of you think that failed marriage or that mistake you made or that decision defines you. Friends, friends, that is the lie on repeat telling you that you are what you've done instead of you are who he's created you to be. Your identity and your value is not in what you've done, it's in what he's done. Some of you are like, no, Cole, that can't be. Not me. If you knew, seriously, Cole, if you knew what I've done. And so God goes, I do. And he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just to clarify, Jesus makes sure and destroys the notion and the idea that you need to earn God's love and approval. I always think about the words that God the Father speaks about when Jesus goes to be baptized. Context, Jesus at this stage has done nothing 
nothing to earn the approval of his Father in heaven. Healed no one. Not been raised from the dead. Not walked the gauntlet. Hasn't sat in the garden. Hasn't loved kids or discipled disciples. Nothing. Context. His ministry has not started. Gets baptized. Comes out of the water. Speaks about that the heavens were rendered open, were ripped open in this verse. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Another version says it like this. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Now, I think the heavens were ripped open because God wanted to make a statement. He wanted to make an emphatic powerful declaration this is my son but I also think that the heavens were ripped open because of the explosion of joy that the father had when he saw his son that it couldn't help but just speak and so when the father looks at his son and goes this 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 is my son remember this is the way that God speaks and sees you this this is my boy I know when I have my kids, I want to show them off to the world. Lion King style. This, this is my son. He looks like his mom, thank God, but this is my son. I'll tell you what, friends. The Father in heaven looks at you and says, This, this is my boy. This is my girl. This is mine. Then, then he goes on to spill his emotions. He's like, I love him. I, I, so, I so dearly love him. And I'm pleased by him. I'm proud of him. What are you proud of God? He hasn't done anything. I'm just proud. He's my boy. I love the second version. It says that like, it says that with so much joy, he just brings me so much joy. I know there are times I just look at my kids and I'm like, I just, my heart. I just love you. You bring me joy. I don't know about you, friends, but I tend to come to Jesus. God, I'm so sorry. I haven't read my Bible. And I know I shouldn't have said that. And I, I made that. And he's like, it's my boy. I love you. I freaking rip open the heavens and shout it. I walk the gauntlet. The gauntlet was a demonstration of heaven saying, I'll do anything for you to show you how proud and how much joy you bring. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. You, my friend, are his joy. He wasn't talking about a joy necessarily of accomplishing what God had asked him to do. You were the joy. Like, like I believe that every step that Jesus took and it felt overwhelming and too hard and too much because make no mistake, he was fully man. And so these emotions would have been going through him. Every step he took, he saw your face. He said, it's worth it. I'll take my next step. And we thought, I couldn't do it. He saw your face. Now, I want to tell you something. He would do it all over again. Even if you were the only one he did it for. The value 
of the gauntlet is that heaven shouts with the declaration, you are valued. And so friends, we need a rewiring of our minds. We need to change the way we think about ourselves. You have to see yourselves differently. Proverbs 23 verse seven says, as a man thinks, so he is. I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly. You're gonna look in the mirror and think you're ugly. I'm useless, I'm useless, I'm useless, I'm useless. You're gonna wake up thinking you're useless. But if we start to get a gauntlet theology that says I must be worth something, I must be valuable, and I actually don't give a gram what anybody else thinks about me, the king of kings, the great I am, the creator of heaven and earth would leave his divinity and comfort of heaven to walk the gauntlet for me, that's enough. In a world that is out of control, the one thing you can control are your thoughts. Seriously, you can control your thoughts. We don't control our thoughts, but you can control your thoughts. Romans chapter 12 verse two speaks about renewing of the mind. It says this, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Many times when we read that, we think it means sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But the pattern of this world is to undervalue yourself, is to underappreciate yourself, is to think you're unworthy, is to have the soundtrack of the enemy over and over and over and over. Break that pattern in the name of Jesus and start to not be conformed to the pattern of this world that says you're not good enough, you don't have what it takes, and start to believe what the word of God God says over your life and you do that by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. I am actually valuable. How friends are you and I going to do that? Well, there are multiple ways. One of them is that you go to Bible college, but another is that we need to, in order to have this rewiring of our minds, is to go back to the original intent. Two things I want to speak about when it comes to creation. Actual, physical, the whole creation and your creation. And we don't have time to spend hours here today, but Genesis chapter one, verse 27 says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. As in, if you were gonna have a tag on the back, it wouldn't say made in China. Many of you walk around like you're made in China. But you are made in heaven. You are not rubbish. You are not trash. You are not disposable. You are not cheap. You are not good for nothing. You are made in heavens. And friend, if I can for a moment, every time you devalue yourself, you devalue the creator in whose image you were created. I'm worth nothing. Effectively, you're worth nothing. God says, I've created you in my image. You're made in heaven. You are hand Crafted. If you've ever thought about this, but God, when he creates, he speaks and things happen. Every single thing that he creates, he speaks. But when it comes to you and me, there's this imagery of intimacy and delicacy. It's almost like he kneels down in the dirt and he goes, this is important to me. Psalm 139 speaks about how God creates us in our mother's wombs. It says, for you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's wombs. Guys, this is not poetry. This is actually what happened at the formation of your life. God 
knit you together in your mother's wombs. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not averagely made. You are not a mistake. You are not a write-off. You're not good for nothing. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. It means that God himself fearfully with all kind of precision and gently and precisely put you together and you are not average. You are wonderful in every way and your words, sorry, your works are wonderful, I know that full well. This is the original intent of why you were created. Live beneath that, friends, and you will live beneath what God has called you to. Heaven shouts with the gauntlet, you are valuable. So what is our response to this gauntlet? Well, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, gives us a little glimpse into this gauntlet that Jesus walks for us. And it says it like this, I am God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works. You see, you can't do the works of God unless you first understand you are the workmanship of God. When you truly understand the value that heaven places upon you, that you are not here by accident, You are not a sum total of all of your mistakes, your missed opportunities. That is not what defines you. You are defined by the fact that heaven crafted, handcrafted, handmade, a workmanship in heaven. And because of that workmanship, you are able to do the works of God. What is our response to the gauntlet, to this walk that Jesus walked? Well, I think when we know how much we're valued, we then begin to see the value in others. Ultimately, that's the work of God. Seeing value in others. While you're still trying to earn value, when you don't have a revelation of this value, when you're trying to get acceptance and approval and love from people and things and status, you will miss the value that is right around you, friends. As you attempt to find value, you will miss the value that is around you. See, we add value to a world that desperately needs value because we realize we are valued. And Jesus, knowing the brutality, the inhumane experience of the cross, this gauntlet, this kind of journey, this Via Dolorosa that no one should have to go through, Jesus himself uses the cross as a symbol for how we should follow him. Perplexing. Why, God? Why, when you had to go to the cross, would you use the cross, the symbol of the gauntlet, the crucifixion, why would you use it as a demonstration, as a symbol for us, your people, your believers, your followers? But here he does it. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 says, Then he said to the crowd, If anyone wants to be a follower of mine, you must give up your own way. We spoke about that last week in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. You must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily 
and follow me. See, only truly when we understand what Jesus did through the gauntlet, are we able to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Let me say it like this. Dave Loveless said it this way. He said, Jesus didn't come to die so that you didn't have to. He came to die so that he could show you how to. See, when you understand the gauntlet and when you understand the value, then instead of looking for value, you start to pick up your cross and show value to the world around you. You start to add value. The gauntlet was more than just heaven shouting, you're valuable. It was shouting, the whole world is valuable. Now show them how valuable they are. That's what the gauntlet was about. It's a proclamation, a declaration to the world. I won't skip, I won't bypass, I won't take the easy route. I will proclaim to a world that they are valuable and once we choose and see the value of the cross, we then begin to pick up ours. So friends, you were invited today to the Via Dolorosa, the painful way, the gauntlet, to pick up your cross, to head towards Golgotha, the place of the skull that speaks of death. Because truly when we lay down our lives, others will see the value that Christ has always seen in you and in them. Can I pray for you today? Two prayers I want to pray. The first is perhaps you here in the room or maybe online and you're just going, hey, Cole, to be honest, I don't know Jesus. I've known about him. I've gone to church. I've maybe even called myself a Christian, but I don't have a living, breathing relationship with Jesus. And I need to make that right today. Everybody's eyes closed. We're not going to embarrass you, but I, I truly believe that responding to the love of God is the first step in receiving salvation. Bible says you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Everybody's eyes closed, not to embarrass you, but to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm going to ask you in a moment to raise your hand and then pop it straight back down and we're all going to pray for you. We're going to pray together. Prayer of salvation. So if that's you here today, friend, won't you pop up your hand in the air, pop it straight back down. Anybody need to pray that prayer this morning? Thank you. Anybody else?